Welcome to the Intercut Podcast, the weekly show going over the TV, movies, and entertainment that people can't cut away from. I am your co-host, Zachary Shevich, and joining me, there are whores in this house. It's Arturo Zurita. I appreciate it. I love how like some people only come in for like the first couple of minutes and they're like, I don't know what relationship these two have, but okay. Gotta give them something to grab on. Gotta give them something to grasp onto. But no, I'm excited to be back. We got a lot of movies to talk about on the what we've been watching, but a crazy amount of news. Like there's so much news in this episode, we have to like put the rest of it in 85, so. Yeah, we we are splitting some of the news of the week up into the next episode. We're going to try and uh, give you a couple episodes. since we also been a li- off a little while. There was mm-hmm. a, a bit of a blackout situation where I, I didn't have power for a few days, but uh we are back. It's really good to talk to you again. It's, it's, it's okay to talk long. to you. I, I, I missed you. Missed you for the, the Palm uh, Springs interview, too. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> Appreciate it. No, I, I, I get it. You were caught in the time loop. Uh, but I you was. have some cool theories. So I, I know you've been developing, working on the, the science yeah. of it all. <laughs> I have the whole board <laughs> trying to see where, where they would have ended up. Why were the dinosaurs yeah. in there? But yeah. <laughs> Uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about 17-day windows, $30 price tags, and Netflix's all-time top 10. Mm-hmm. But first, make sure you're subscribed to the Intercut Podcast, either the video podcast on YouTube.com slash IntercutPod or the audio podcast available in most podcatchers. Also, follow Intercut on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We are at IntercutPod. That's at Intercut P-O-D. That's short for podcast. And while you're here, just another reminder to leave us a five-star review over on the Apple Podcasts uh, service, whatever you want to call iTunes nowadays. <laughs> uh, we, 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 we appreciate those reviews and those are some of the best ways to support our show and help get it in other people's feeds. So please go over to iTunes and do that. Uh, we will appreciate it. We might even read your review on the show. Hey. But first, let's start the show the way we start it every week here with what we are watching. Art. What are you watching? Uh, well, you know, we we're working on a video for the Umbrella Academy. I don't know if you've gotten into it at all. I have seen all of season two. Oh, okay. Did, uh, did you ever read the comics? No, uh, I think you've said you have. I have. Uh, I really like the comics, but what are your thoughts, okay. Zach? Actually, I don't even want to talk about it because <laughs> I just finished editing a video on it. <laughs> Zach, you tell me your thoughts <laughs> on Umbrella Academy. <laughs> um, well, I was also I was definitely less into the first season than I think... Uh, many people I've talked to. Mm. I, I know Amanda, who we frequently have Loved on the it. podcast, is a big fan of Umbrella Academy. I, I don't remember how positive you were on it. I, I want to say I was still more negative than you two. Just, uh, it's not necessarily a show that matches the aesthetics that I'm looking for in a lot of my entertainment. It, it's a, a very kind of loud show in its expressions. Yep. It's, it's very... Uh, Extra, even not in the slang term, just they put in literally extra stuff into every moment, it feels like. Uh, and, and for me, I, I find myself often questioning the the necessity a lot of, of a lot of their choices and ha- being taken out of the moment by uh, very big music choices or very big character choices. Um, so I don't know, because... It's not a show that I find myself watching that much, uh, find myself enjoying when I'm watching it that much. Okay. But I still manage to watch two entire seasons of it. Um, There there are performances that I like from the cast. There are uh, clever moments in the writing. But all in all, it really is just like 
a little bit too too much, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for me in most moments. I feel you. I I I, I, I liked the first season. Uh, I liked the yeah. second season a little bit better. Uh, what I'm a really mm-hmm. big fan of, because obviously it's it's a dysfunctional superhero power family and that's what they're going through and i I said the first one was like a buffet Uh, (laughs) every single character is in their own genre of a show practically um but the way that they mesh up for dallas which is um also based off of the second one by the guy who did my chemical romance uh i enjoyed it because yeah they always uh, dude i got grilled for the way that i said his first name so i was like i'm just gonna stay mr way the lead singer uh (laughs) the way that the uh comics are going is that they got Three out so far, but he's got like an eight story arc. So he has given them a document, practically telling them like this is where everything is going to go. So it's interesting rewatching one and noticing, wait a minute, you guys have implanted stuff in season one that we won't know about till eight and stuff that was in season one that we got revealed at by the end of two. So the fact it's really rare, you know, because we're so used to shows starting hoping they get something and here they've mm-hmm. started it from season one with stuff that they won't be revealing until five. And I, I don't know. I, I think that's really cool to like, yeah. Um, was it Marvel did that with the, the guy who was there the entire time here? That may actually be the case. And right. uh, an extra that you didn't think twice about may end up being a major character later on. I find that really fascinating. Um, I did find season two to be a little bit better, but I would recommend anyone who loves the show, read the comic. The comic's really dope. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, since you are more familiar with the comic, uh, it's not an anthology show, but the entire first season takes place on one timeline and the second season takes place on a different part of that timeline. You know, it's got like a very segmented side. You're not you're not going to confuse confuse a season one episode for a season two episode. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of the way that the comic is in that they're like chapters of an adventure in that segmented way? He uh, he he pitched it like this, Mister Way. He said, "We issue one should be issue fifty, but we skipped all the way and just threw you to like issue fifty one. So it's like you have no backstory. You're just into it, and you have to again read the third one to go back and realize what had happened. Oh, that's what they meant in the first one. Um, season one and two, they take different things. So like season one took a lot of stuff from season two." From the book, too. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I meant. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, too, is taking some stuff from one. So it's not as definitive as this one. And I would say that's just because of the film aesthetic. Like, obviously, everything needs to be in the 60s. Obviously, in the first one, everything was in 2019. Um, so, no. the That's why I would recommend the book. The book jumps so to so many different things. They'll just show a character for a panel. Mm-hmm. Then he'll be the lead, like, in the third one. So that's why I, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it because I think it fits the style better. That, that disconnect that you may be feeling with it in the adaptation to TV, you, I'm always a big proponent that the original source of wherever it comes from is the best form to tell it. Uh, Alan Moore, who he's a big fan of, always said, I don't watch the movies of my adaptations because I wrote it to be a comic. Uh, right. I do think Umbrella Academy's done a good adaptation, but you, can, you can't ever beat the book, you know? You can't ever right. beat the book. Right. Sometimes there's a reason they're conceived for a certain Exactly, movie. yeah. What have you been watching? What else have you been? I've only been watching Umbrella Academy. (laughs) I read through that twice. So what have you been watching? Well, I got a couple. I got a couple that I can bring up. Uh, I finally caught Shirley, uh, which I know was both you and Amanda thought it was one of the best movies the first half of the Mm -hmm. year. And um, regretting not seeing it before we recorded that best movies of of 2020 so far. I'm glad you got it. it. Definitely would have been on my list. Uh, I, I've been a fan of Josephine Decker's work uh, for a little while now. She's really graduated from uh, these very stripped down mumblecore 
very kind of improvised, improvisatory movies into these much richer, much more complex stories. And I think here uh, you really get to see her gift for this like unsettling imagery and this like disorienting camera work, the way that she'll like pan across a ceiling and shift the camera in this weird Dutch angle and land on uh, Elizabeth Moss in the bedroom. Yes. It's, just, uh, it, it's really kind of haunting, but I think gives you that vibe, uh, that unsettled vibe that you get throughout the movie because it is in its way sort of like an update on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with mm-hmm. these two couples, an older one and a younger one, uh, in a way just trapped in this house together, making each other more miserable. Uh, I thought the way that she illustrated the thoughts in her writer's head to be really hypnotizingly beautiful, uh, the, the the images that you would see kind of obfuscated a little bit, uh, but like patches of Elizabeth, Shirley Jackson's writing sort of coming to life uh, as she is conceiving of the book in the film. Uh, Elizabeth Moss here does such great work, uh, you know, just coming off of so many great performances, I was struck by how much of a wholly different person she is here. Like, you're not going to confuse her acting in Shirley or Invisible. her acting in Invisible Man or her acting in Her Smell <laughs> or, or any any other film. She's just so good at giving you a full character. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what form this year's Oscars is going to take, but I'd really love it if she was kept in mind. Yeah. Because this is... It's one of the standout performances easily for me. the whole cast I thought was excellent and uh yeah I mean it, it's you know a little bit of a it's a little bit of a slow burn but I I thought it ends in a really cool way a really satisfying uh examination of these relationships and yeah just so some top-notch acting and directing throughout agreed Stahlberg is also fa- oh my they're just going back at each other that's I, another dude who's like a, a completely different person in every role every single thing yeah he'd be scary in one role and then the next one you're like oh you're the dad and call me by your name uh, <laughs> yeah, I still remember, yeah I, I really wish you were able to enter that I, I remember when we had sat i think it was amanda and i we were able to make it in and we were saving the seats up at the front uh in the balcony and y'all mm. just got cut off i think from the wait list and it's like ugh, i knew that would have been one of your favorites for the from the fest but hey yeah. you gotta, it's on hulu. gotta see a lot of good it's stuff yeah on Hulu now, so other people can catch up with Shirley. Uh, also, I caught an American Pickle, the latest HBO Max release uh, starring dual Seth Rogans, uh, based on a sh- short story by Simon Rich. Uh, this one's got Seth Rogan playing a immigrant immigrant from an Eastern Euro- fictional Eastern European country who comes to America and gets preserved in a vat of pickles for a hundred years. Uh, meets his great grandson who looks just like him. Uh, it's a silly premise, uh, another one of those uh, dual character roles mm-hmm. that we've seen a lot of people do. Uh, Paul Rudd more recently on that Netflix show or, uh, you know, it's a very common theme uh, yeah. with major comedy actors to do that kind of performance. Uh, I thought here he's doing a particularly good job, though, at giving you two characters. There's no point at which it feels like he's slipping into one or the other. Yeah, I th- I felt like he was very distinctly two different guys. He did a good job. Uh, worked for me uh there's moments in this movie that i found really warm and intimate in kind of like a in like a really uh heartwarming way the the way in which they look out for each other as family these like strange weird family that's been created uh and that 
stood out to me as some of the better moments. There's a lot of very silly humor that I liked. I, I like very early in the movie when uh, the scientist is, is, is explains how he was able to be preserved, and they go, "Oh, uh, everybody believed it," <laughs> and then everybody believes it. Uh, but I, I didn't like as much when the film got a little bit more contentious when it was like a budding rivalry yeah. and talked a little bit of like cancel culture uh, that that stuff's maybe a little bit broad in not broad in a way that I liked less uh, but I thought there was like a warm heartedness that throughout that really made me stick with stick with it uh, I enjoyed it a lot I, I don't know how you feel though I did uh, yeah so I, I did end up catching American Pickle as well uh, yeah. during the weekend and it reminded me a lot of the cobbler. Not a not a comparison that I was hoping to hear, but okay. I, I know a lot of people don't like the cobbler, but I feel it's like it's that. Me included. You don't like the cobbler? Yeah, I kind of hated the cobbler. Oh, okay. Well, then let me compare it to another movie. It, it it's <laughs> no. Go ahead. I, I I agree with you in the sense where it's like it's it's a very funny premise and it's got a lot of really good moments in it. There's a certain point where, like you said, the movie tries to do the uh, oh, you know about cancel culture? We're just going to include it here. Uh, oh, the the permit side of it. It's it's like the beats that it has to hit at certain points, um, which to me isn't as as funny as like an intimate moment that you create between the two characters. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it was funny. Like, I love just that a small moment like them dancing together. Yeah. And the, the like cultural difference of that uh, wh- where he's one of them's astounded by the music even being played and the other is uh, it's just a regular moment. It's just a regular. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of A Night's uh, I think it's A Night's Tale. The Return of the Night. I can't. It's the one with uh, Leon the Professional and he's a knight and he arrives in modern day times. <laughs> Someone will know what we're talking about. That yeah. movie is hilarious because he thinks like it's a demon horse and it's just a taxi cab, <laughs> but he's a knight. He doesn't know the difference. Uh, another right, perfect right. one, which would be the reverse, would be uh, what is it? Dark Knight, Black Knight with Martin Lawrence, Black who Knight actually, with Lawrence, who actually yes. goes back. So you know what? I'll compare hilarious. it to those two instead of the cobbler. How about that? Cool. I, I see that. Those are definitely comparisons that I can see. So yeah, I mean, it's it's not gonna change your life or or really like teach you that much of a lesson but i thought it was warm and funny and a few moments made me laugh out loud yeah and, uh definitely one of the more jewish movies i've seen at least since <laughs> uncut gems uh was so. this the reason why he went and he did the whole tour and he started saying yeah. the things he was saying i think there's better ways to promote the movie my man but yo hey he got himself in a pickle there for sure <laughs> yeah. um yeah i don't know if you wanted to talk about he knew the, he, would. he knew he knew uh the satoshi yeah. We got our. Uh, our I did four. want to bring up the rental quickly. Oh yeah, let's we talk get about the rental that. for sure, for sure. Yeah, because I know you put up the. Let me explain. Uh, it's of the, the of course the directorial debut from Dave Franco, uh, starring his wife Allison Brie. Uh, it's uh, this small horror movie. Mm-hmm. I think Joe Swanberg is the co-director or co-writer of co-writer. it. Co-writer. Um, co-writer. Uh, so it's got that very limited uh, and, and like character-focused thing that Joe Swanberg likes to do. Uh, I thought it had some interesting moments in it, the way that it kind of tries to build some sexual tension and xenophobic tension uh, and just kind of gives you this looming feeling of something is going to go wrong. Uh, Those were bits of it that I thought were good. Uh, Ultimately, though, it just sort of devolves into like a very ordinary slasher film. Uh, And yeah, it it was a bit of a letdown for me. I had don't know if there's anything more you wanted to expand on than what you talked about in your video. No, that's it. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. like you either like it or you don't. I was like, to me, it, it's, again, it's a, uh, 
you get these rentals <laughs> to rent every week. And out of the other ones, I was very surprised with his uh, directing. And it was more so because it's like you can tell he was paying attention when he's around Joe Swanberg, when he's around all of the directors that he's been with, you can tell that he has a passion for it. Um, I, I liked the moments where he touched upon all those things that you said. But it's just like a hint of cinnamon in the recipe, you know? It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not like he's doing anything more with it. It's cool to have there. And I was like, okay, you can do something with this franchise, which is what he already wants it to be. Um, but yeah, overall, decent rent it. That's, what I, that's how I had it. Nothing more to add to it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, however, if- I do like. Um, I don't. I feel so bad blinking on the name right now. But the actress who was in it, who was also in We the Animals, I thought she did a fantastic job uh, yeah, yeah. in her previous role. So I'm curious to see what other roles she gets from here. Totally. Yeah, I thought the cast was all really good in it. Um, but it definitely feels like uh, Dave auditioning for a potentially bigger movie in the future. Yeah. Um, so I can see that. We'll see how that goes. All right, so let's get into some Satoshi Khan. It was uh, recommended to us by Magnitude Reviews. Yes, sir. Our uh, donation drive. We wanted to check out the Japanese film animator and magna magna artist who manga artist who uh, died at 46 from pancreatic cancer. Wow. Uh, So a premature ending to a pretty astounding legacy he wrote and directed four feature-length films along with creating the series paranoia agent and the short film good morning as well as contributing to several other films uh and as uh magnitude brought up to us he's a filmmaker who's been referenced a lot by many iconic filmmakers big Uh, most notably most notably probably darren aronofsky who uh, I, I don't know if this is real or just one of those things that people tweet and retweet for years and years, but did he actually get the rights to Perfect Blue so he could recreate shots in Requiem for a Dream, or is that just one of those weird rumors? Hey. Enjoy the movie, Sounds Zach. Good. And that, and from what I know, that's all that... Uh, 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 Who would you say? Who was the director? Was it Fincher? Or not Fincher, uh, Aronofsky. Aronofsky. Aronofsky was just like, yeah. hey. The movie's out. Enjoy it. <laughs> it is shot for shots. Uh, yeah. Very much there. It, they just said they pay homage. See, they got to understand right. Tarantino laid the groundwork out and he said, you don't take from something unless it's po- pre-1950. If it's anything too close, <laughs> people are going to figure out. Nolan being another one who has very, very similar shot for shots uh, that he used for, from I think it was Paprika, it was a perfect blue yeah. for um, Inception. Inception. So, Yeah. I know you covered two. You got to watch two of them. I got to watch. I the actually two. got to watch all four of them. My man! Yeah. All right, let's go. Let's break them down. We'll we'll go through each. I one. I had some hoopla issues at first, but you know the people oh, did at work? the library—they're very you. responsive. They're very helpful, and uh, got that working. Fire. So shout out to Hoopla. Yeah. I believe most of the films are on there, and Hoopla is a way that you could literally watch a bunch of movies. They got Denis Villeneuve's Polytechnique. I'd never even seen that one yet. That's the one Denis Villeneuve I haven't seen, and they just got it. Um, mm-hmm. They never had it in my library. You just get a library yeah, card, so many and you're able to stream international it. titles. It's dope. So many international titles. It's and free. Interesting movies a bunch of even recent releases are available on that's surprising so Uh, yeah our favorite bad movie of the year inheritance available on hoopla really (laughs) yeah oh man i'm about to rewatch it then (laughs) (laughs) the backyard okay all right let's talk about which one you want to start with uh let's start with the first one perfect blue his his directorial or feature directorial debut uh maybe the most famous of his films uh the story of a pop star turned actress who has a creepy fan sort of interfering with her life and 
getting himself involved in ways. Uh, it's a really, uh, it's a really disorienting film in a lot of ways. He does these match cuts throughout. They're very, very cool. The way that he's able to hop back and forth through time and connect scenes in a way that like, there, it almost feels like one scene that never ends mm-hmm. the way that this movie is blended together. Uh, and the swirling chaos of it is something that you can definitely tell uh, more than just the shots that Darren Aronofsky lifted for Requiem for a Dream. That feeling of losing control, I feel like, is something that's present for Requiem for a Dream and in Mother. Like it reminded me of both of those films, mm-hmm. uh, that it definitely has that vibe of it. Uh, so the way that he keeps you questioning throughout Perfect Blue the the reality of the situation, it, it was very satisfying and very gripping. Uh, for me, it was the one of his four films that I enjoyed the most. I, I don't know if you what were your thoughts on Perfect Blue. Um, I haven't seen this one in a while. I ended up catching Tokyo Go- uh, Tokyo Godfathers and Millennium oh, okay, Actress because okay. uh, I, I still had the other like 70 other movies to catch. Uh, but right, I have right. caught this and I have also caught Paprika. Um the the thing I remember the most about this movie was, like you said, the editing techniques. And I remember listening to an interview where he had said that the reason why he loves animation, he's always like, you know, preferred it to live action, mm-hmm. is that in live action, there's too many, too many frames in the type of match cuts or transitions that he's trying to do. And by having it be drawn animation, he is able to just have it be the minimal amount of frames that he needs and it works better for the eye. And he's able mm-hmm. to like, and he does this a lot in Tokyo Godfathers too, because Tokyo Godfathers was the only one I had not seen of the four, which when it was pitched to us, he was like, hey, you don't even have to worry about it. It's just four, guarantee he's got no more coming out. Um, right. But it's it's the way that he just uh, is able to transition from one scene to another. Uh, it was funny because I had also been recommended Speed Racer, which does effects and transitions stuff. to like the next degree uh, obviously the Wachowski one but uh, yeah that's one of the biggest things that stood out to me the first time I had watched it years ago when I had uh, gone into his films yeah uh, it, it's totally what stands out throughout his films he does a lot of that in, in across his filmography but I think uh, maybe it's at its best or most effective for me in Perfect Blue uh, I saw and, you put it as one of your favorites yeah I mean uh, it was maybe the best thing that I watched in the month Ooh, of July that I hadn't that. seen before so uh Shout out to shout out to Satoshi Khan's first. It, it it's a great one. Uh, had a really satisfying twist late in the film too. I, I was not expecting uh, the way that it progressed, so mm-hmm. it yeah kept me entertained throughout. I like this one a lot. Dope. Um, Millennium Actress was the second film. Yes, he sir. Made, uh, the a profile of a aging actress who. Uh, it's a profile of her life and her career, a fictional actress and a documentary crew that goes to interview her about it. And again, you get these match cuts throughout. Uh, he does this really cool thing in that uh, she will start to tell a story about her life and it'll bleed into yeah. uh, flashbacks to that moment. And then the scene will evolve and it'll turn into one of her film roles. And you you see the same characters popping up throughout and you, it kind of leaves you to decipher like, is this person actually that person or is this person a representation of this type of figure or is it a way of blending her real life experiences with her movie career uh, and that way in which it kind of keeps switching between the story it's trying to tell you eventually involving uh, the documentary crew itself is is very, very hypnotizing uh, in its way. The story here I was maybe a little less involved with. Uh, okay. Than Perfect Blue, uh, you know, it, 
maybe because it is a fictional actress, uh, I'm a little less tied to like the idea of, you know, going throughout her career. Her history and stuff. Yeah. You're not as attached. Exactly. Um, But as a representation of, uh, you know, telling this history, it is very interestingly done um, and beautiful throughout. Uh, Again, that that match cutting is like so precise, like you mentioned, like down to certain frames in a way that if you wanted to try and redo this live action, you would never be able to get it so perfect. Exactly. Uh, I didn't get to see Paranoia Agent, but I was listening to a lot of the interviews that he said there and how he was recalling back to stuff from his movies that he was never able to use. And a lot of the stuff would come from Millennium Actress, specifically dealing with like identity and such. And uh, one of the quotes that he had had was how he writes these characters. It's less about how did the character... Uh, and I believe I have it here, actually, that it was not not about how characters get involved in situations, but how those situations affect them. That everybody wants to know, it's like, how can we, you know, how is the vantage point that everybody's like focusing on the situation? But it's like, how does it affect the characters as opposed to the documentary crew just being a part of it and, and the stuff that she had gone through? It's like, how do the situations that they've gone through affect them? Not how, th- how do they affect the situation? So I think that's like uh, the most interesting aspect of how he writes his stories. And he does the same thing with uh, Tokyo as well, which we'll talk about. But yeah, mm-hmm. again, it's just how he plays with perspective and how he uses animation that honestly rewatching it. I don't know what it is with American animation <laughs> and all of the technology we put into it. But this type of animation still holds up to this day. Like, uh, and yeah. I think it has to do because they're implementing it not to just look aesthetically pleasing or like fun or colors, which a lot of American animation does. But it's like it's actually telling you a story. And because he's telling you a story and he's, he's using every single aspect of what's on screen, not just as like beautiful animation, but as an actual storytelling um, technique. So I, I agree. I don't think yeah. this could be adapted. Right. As much as I feel like you could almost try to do an interesting version of it, it's just so precise in the way he yeah. does, goes through it. Uh, that emotional disconnect is maybe what made me not as uh, receptive immediately towards this. But I have the feeling that this is going to be a movie that like I, exists in the back of my mind for a while to to maybe warm me up to it, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's so so unique in its approach to storytelling in uh, the wide scope of stories it's trying to tell. Uh, that ambition is something that I, I was really uh, awed by here because uh, it's it's something that would be very hard to do in another medium. Um, like so, yeah, I, it, maybe not as much of a standout for me, but uh, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, f- I don't know if you want to move on to Tokyo Godfathers, f- oh. which for me was... Uh, not as interesting, but you seem to like it more. Well, it was because it was, this is the only one I hadn't seen. So I found it fun. It is, it is definitely like out of all the movies, this is the most like, it was pitched as a Christmas movie. Like looking back at the marketing that they had for it, this was like the Christmas movie that was very anti-Christmas to a degree because it calls out commercialism. Uh, Mm. I know it's based off of the novel Three Godfathers, which has been adapted multiple times. uh, And instead of them being three homeless people who end up finding a child it ends up uh, always being three robbers i know john wayne even has an adaptation of uh the three godfathers um with this one being jen hannah and miyuki uh and the coincidences in this that was the one thing where i was like there's so many times where you have like a deuce ex machina thing that happens but here it's Mm -hmm. like 
it's so like they find a man who's about to die. They find a baby. They they find every single person who ends up helping them in their in their path of what they're going through. And then you realize mm-hmm. at a certain point, I was like, yo, this man is purposefully using cliches, coincidences as something in his story. And I searched up and he's like, yeah, that's all I'm doing. Um, with it being the Christmas story and how they have um, the entire uh, every single billboard that you see. It was like an interesting aspect of it where whatever the billboard was advertising, you would notice that some of the restaurants or places were called that. Not to compare it to Marvel, but Marvel did this thing where once Thor enters the MCU in America, there are certain um, Nordic, what is it called? Nordic uh, churches that they've implanted mm. throughout the franchise because in this world, Thor came down. Some people worship right. him. So the idea would have been here is that in commercialism, you have all of these places. And I know we talked about it a little about it in the Five Bloods. All of these billboards have to a degree, not infected, but reach the um, the culture that that's what they name their restaurants after. Some of the products, the same exact same products that you're seeing up on the screen and such. Um, yeah, but no, it's I, this hyper commercial vision. Of exactly. Tokyo, yeah. Which is a, which is a extremely commercialized city. Uh, but here you get to see that juxtaposition between uh, the the wealth that some people have and the lack of it that our three protagonists have, the three homeless people who do find this baby. Um, and I think, uh, you know, all that stuff is very interestingly done. Ultimately, what made me, again, not as receptive to it is the... Uh, I wasn't as invested in the emotional stories of those characters of, uh, you know, their, their search for uh, whatever redemptive, uh, whatever redemption they needed. Uh, And maybe that's a failing of on my behalf, because Mm -hmm. I often find myself uh, at a distance with animated characters in a way that I don't with a real person in the role. Um, But, you know, it would go to certain emotional places and I wouldn't find myself as emotionally compelled. Uh, Maybe that's also like a subtitles thing, too. I don't know. Uh, But the the story here is the least fantastical of his feature films. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a he's a guy who has these crazy floor animated flourishes. and, And there's you see some remnants of that, but it's not the story itself isn't as catered to that kind of. Uh, wild expression so maybe because it's a little bit less splashy uh, this one stands out the least for me yeah but again you know you having seen the, the films previously uh, maybe you're a little more uh, aware of, of why this one does stand out in in certain good ways for uh, for Satoshi Kong it could also be that it's an adaptation too you know right as right. opposed to the other ones, but uh, one of the quotes that I really liked in some of the interviews that he had done for this one was uh, one he had even cast the actress off like a coincidence. He was like, "I like her voice. Mm-hmm. I think that's what she, that's I think that's how it, what she would sound like." Um, but he said an interesting thing about paranoia and fantasy that a lot of people are like, uh, "You sometimes you focus on paranoia, sometimes you make it more fantastical." Like you had said, he goes to him. They're the same side of the same coin. They're the they're the opposite sides of the same coin. To somebody, something is fantastical and it's positive, but to somebody else, paranoia. It's fantastical to the most um, anxiety-driven degree. Uh, so I found that really interesting where he's like, it's just which side you want to carry it out. And uh, yeah, Paprika, his final yeah, so his, film. His final film, uh, potentially his most influential film. I'd say so. Uh, a really interesting anime uh, movie. 
uh, about a research psychologist who uses a device that can enter people's dreams as a way of helping to treat patients. Although uh, from the very start, we are already getting some malfunctioning in this dream device. And, and here Satoshi Khan really doubles down on that disorienting match cut aesthetic that he developed in his earlier films here because uh, it's just constantly... Uh, going in and out of dreams and adding in new elements and, and uh, suddenly transporting you to a different time and place. Uh, there's all these recurring elements from like the parade to uh, the, the different dolls and stuff. It, it's so uh, visually, I, I want to say this in a positive way, visually assaultive though, uh, that in a way that I think it gives you like the most of what he can do in terms of uh, blending worlds in this way that you know messes with you yeah and here it really the aim is to mess with you because he's giving you the story where it's hard to it, for the first half of it you're very much unaware of like what really is real what are we really doing here uh, it's deeply confusing i was lost for long stretches of the movie in a way uh <laughs> I, in, I know in a way mean. that felt totally intentional you know it's an insane dream that you don't know how to escape i'd say to take your assaulting what and say manipulative not in a bad way yeah you know okay. it's just he knows yeah. what he's doing with the beats it's like you know how like you have a frequency and you know how that's going to cause an emotion out of somebody he does the exact same thing here with uh the imagery that he puts on and how he cuts it and how he decides to show it to you uh that it, it is it's meant to make you disoriented just like the character mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean, it's clear It's clear from the premise alone the uh, influence that this movie has had on Inception, even some I was shots, trying to find a way um, to, yeah, some of the shots are like 100% uh, Yeah, there's a certain one with like the world shattering, which uh, there's Twitter gifs of uh, that in comparison to the Ellen Page, yeah. one of some of the world shattering in Inception. So, yeah, you can really see Christopher Nolan uh, borrowing liberally from this film. I, I talked a little bit in, in on Letterboxd about how uh, I, I feel like some of the comparisons between this movie and Inception aren't necessarily fair to what a satisfying piece of populist entertainment Inception is, because like this movie is a, is deeply weird in a way that would not work on most American audiences. Right. True. Like you have to have to be ready and willing to get lost and, and be be confused and have your mind blown by this movie uh you know there's a lot of people who are like oh inception's mind blowing but it's it's not really it's not like it's pretty it's pretty like easy to follow you know because nolan has structured it so rigidly uh because that's the thing nolan does with his movies is give you a rigid structure yeah satoshi khan isn't interested in that he's He's not exactly uh and, and that's like i think that we should celebrate both those films on their own merits um I will say ultimately one thing that took me out of uh, of Paprika was the fat phobia because it was frequent and uh, like just unrelenting in certain aspects. And uh, I don't know. Uh, it just 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 depressed me, man. Tokyo Godfathers has the same thing with the character who is trans. Uh, they were right. looking back at it and a trans person. Sorry. They were looking back at it and the actor. um the interviews for the actor looking back at it now and the people who have gone back to look at it were like, wow, because he doesn't refer to her as a woman, which is the whole point of the character who he's voicing. And that's like how you're introduced to the character. So it is, 
yeah, they, it is interesting looking back at these four movies, um, in particular th- th- these two cases, and seeing like how that has shifted in the viewpoint. And I, I don't know how much of it comes from. I mean, it has to come from Satoshi, but at least in the case of the Tokyo Godfather, uh, it came from the actor. Like, the actor was just like, it was a fun costume to wear. <laughs> Which, right. if you say that today, you're going to be Halle Berry right. out of here. You, they're going to send you, you get, a Scarlet. You end up in the Disclosure documentary. 100%. So, but yeah, no. I, I, so, out of all of them, how would you rank them? Uh, for me, Perfect Blue was definitely the standout. Uh, far and away, my favorite of his films. I just was really into the story and everything. Uh, and then, I don't know, um, I thought Paprika was more uh, unique and and kind of maybe mind-blowing, but mm-hmm. I maybe I was a little more satisfied with Millennium Actress than okay. that one. Yeah, I go the same way. Less I go, depressed me about yeah, it. Yeah, Perfect Blue, Millennium, uh, especially on the rewatch, because I agree with you. I think the, what, the moment you rewatch it again, because it's like, again, you're mm. following her journey for the first time, you don't know her. Once you know her, rewatching it, it's like, oh, I semi know the fictional actress um and then i would still put tokyo at the at, at the bottom i just liked it because it was yeah. one i had not seen um totally. and it's definitely it's definitely a little bit different than the other ones if you don't want to get too deep into the craziness that he does with his other movies but no yeah, yeah that might be my uh, more of like a dipping your toes into the water mm-hmm. choice there, uh but. he also has a movie that never got finished i don't know if they're ever gonna eyes wide shut it but he does mm. have like script and concepts and they're, they're still kicking it around it's not dead yeah. yet yeah. so we'll see we'll see what happens with that yeah we'll see they uh finished the uh orson welles movie uh, after a while <laughs> you so. know you never know who knows who knows so yeah, thanks again to Magnitude Reviews for suggesting we do that Satoshi Kon deep dive uh, and make sure you check out those films or let us know what you think of those films if you've had a chance to check them out. Uh, but that's what we've been watching. Let us know what you've been watching down in the comments or by shooting us an email, intercutpod at gmail.com. We are going to move on to the yay or nay where we break down the latest happenings in entertainment, starting with the battle between Universal Pictures and AMC Theaters. It's been settled. The biggest theater chain in America will once again show Universal's movies. However, Universal can put those films on PVOD as early as 17 days after the theatrical release. Art, yay or nay, you think more studios will follow Universal's lead? Like, inevitably, I would think so, because they're not following Universal's lead Netflix has been doing this. They did it with the Irishman. They did it with Roma. They did it with, you know, it was going to be available on Netflix the final, following month. You just were not able to make a deal with AMC because AMC still doesn't like Netflix to the point that they don't even showcase the best. Remember when, remember when it was Roma, but then the previous year it was Marriage Story, uh, The Irishman that were nominated for Best Picture, but they were so petty they didn't include it in the watch along for the best picture mm-hmm. showcase. Uh, they've been doing that. I don't I, I don't know the financials off the top of my head to see how it worked for Marriage Story, how it mm-hmm. did in independent theaters before it went to Netflix. Um, I know that when it came to the Irishman, it was packed. Uh, right now, thinking they were about selling out a yeah, Broadway theater. Th- exactly, thinking about who filled that up though in an enclosed place that would not be possible right now. They would have left like the man at the end of the movie, but. Uh, they still showed up, and I think it it really is going to come down depending to the property. I know they were saying that they were still going to play it both ways, where some movies will come out day in and day 
of the release in theaters and mm-hmm. digital. They said that there were still going to be other movies that were going to keep the 90-day thing, obviously because it benefits them. Like, let's keep it... We know what they're mentioning here. It's not going to be fast. It's not going to be Jurassic. It's not going to be any of those. So no. it's not that they're going to. They already are. This is yeah. just AMC willing to sign a contract with somebody who wants to do it. But Netflix has been doing it. Netflix has been doing it. Yeah, and I think net, companies like Netflix and you know even Amazon and others are, are helping to contribute to the erasing of that window, of that uh, delayed release window. Uh, we are in extreme circumstances right now because of coronavirus, but that this has been a... a a process that's been ongoing for months and years and maybe decade, you know, uh, that movie theaters are losing that exclusivity and they're going to have to change with the times or not get access to certain movies. And, you know, we talked about this back when AMC first uh, threatened Universal with not showing any more of their movies, that they weren't going to be able to last until the time that the next Fast and Furious movie came out because Fast and Furious is more important to a company like AMC than it ultimately is. Uh, Universal can put that on video on demand and they would still make a lot of money, maybe not the money that they want to make, but like if without movies like Fast and Furious, nobody's going back to the AMC. Exactly. Uh, what struck me as particularly interesting were some of the stipulations here, uh, including that AMC will be receiving some of the uh, some of the revenue from movies that go to PVOD before that 90 window, 90 day window. So AMC is making out really well here. Um, another weird thing that I didn't, I thought was pretty underreported is that universal is not allowed to release the release date of VOD until after 10 days in a theatrical exclusive window. So what? there could be a movie that they put out, you go see it in a movie theater, and then oh. 10 days later, you find out it's going to VOD in seven days. That's funny. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's dumb, but that's great. Because then that way you stop people from going, I don't, I, I, hey, I, they got to see it in these 10 days, or do I not? I mean, some people, I, I think they underestimate how many people don't see a movie till like two weeks later. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I see what you mean. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty weird rule. I'm wondering what the thing that you said about how AMC is going to be able to have a cut. AMC never liked streaming. Uh, they introduced AMC on the man, though. If they're going to be pushing that as the option to be able to get a cut, that they will be hosting mm-hmm. the PVODs through their AMC on demand, which already comes in the app. And if that's the case, does that mean that you will be able to use one of your physical check-ins for your premiere stubs as a VOD stream? Interesting. That would be could dope. Could pay to be an A-list member. You know what I mean? We always talk about this with the yeah. festivals. We're like, wouldn't it be easier to just give someone a screener and you have another right. seat you could fill? So, I don't know. That'll be interesting. Yeah. It'll be very interesting and especially interesting to see which movies ultimately go uh, for that limited theatrical window and which movies they decide to stay like for a month in theaters or th- 90 days. Well, we will see. Let's hope it's... I was going to say two movies, but they were both Warner Bros., so never mind. <laughs> Imagine it'd be like one of the biggest ones. Disney is done sitting on their many unreleased blockbuster films with movie theaters not quite ready for a billion-dollar release. Disney is instead shifting Mulan to Disney Plus on September 4th. However, unlike Hamilton or Artemis Fowl, 
Mulan will cost $30 on top of a Disney Plus membership in order to own it. So, Art, yay or nay, the release of Mulan is a sign of things to come for Disney's other major movies. Yes. My question to you is, do you think, because people are like, this announcement shows that they have been updated with the news and theaters are going to be open. Don't you think that they, do you think they knew about this long ago? They just weren't allowed to like tell you it's going to go to VOD until the moment they decided this is the around the time that it's going to go to VOD. I mean, I think, you know, we also got news recently that Disney's theme parks are doing even worse than expected. Even the ones that have opened up again. What? Uh, we also got news that uh, the Hamilton, the Hamilton bump that many people projected was not quite as significant a bump in subscribers um, as previously thought. So they're not making a whole lot of money as a company right now. So to me, this is probably something they were holding on to in their back pocket. Okay. Like, all right, we, we got this potential revenue stream and looking at the, the landscape right now, they realized we're probably not going to make a lot of money this year. Otherwise, this is one of their, their last cards to play is they've got these movies and they've got streaming. But they still want to get people onto Disney Plus, so they're not going to just go VOD the way they did with Onward initially. Uh, they they are centralizing it here, and what I don't know if this has been the plan with Disney Plus all along, or if this is uh, I, I I would speculate that it's been uh, more of a plan because of coronavirus, but it definitely presents an interesting alternative for them given how much stuff they have, how much premium content they're talking about putting out through Disney plus when, you know, the, the subscription already gives you access to such a vault of stuff. I could see a future where they are like, no, no, no. The sign up fee is to get the Simpsons and Pixar movies, but to get the new WandaVision show, you also got to pay $30 for that or something. <sighs> I wanted to say a couple of nice things, but then you made me go straight to the bad things. <laughs> they got rid of or want to get rid of physical releases. By getting rid of physical releases, we'll be talking about it's that. A, yeah, you know, so this is a way to be able to do what? You are going to be able to lease out movies, you know? You paid the th- mm-hmm. Hey, if you were to buy it, you purchase the movie, then at that point, you own it for the, what, twenty four ninety nine. I don't know if the movies would go up to 30 But at this point, you've paid $30, but you still have to pay the subscription fee every single time or else it goes away. I do like the aspect of being able to own it, you know, because it's either you got to rent it for 48 hours or do you own it? And they found a compromise somewhere in the middle where it's like, all right, you will be able to own it as long as you have the fee. I get it. It works. But like you said, in the long run, this is going to turn into everyone's going to do it. The Universal movies are going to do it through Peacock. The Warner Bros. movies are going to do it through HBO Max. And it's like going to be like, oh, you have an account? Cool. But do you have the maxed out account, though? Did you have all these extra movies added on, bro? And if that's the way that they're going to be selling movies, too, that's going to be scary because then it's like, I hope we still have Voodoo's. I hope we still have the Apple TVs. And I'm sure that they will still be there. But it's like, yeah, they're really tying it into also having that service. Everybody wants you to lease. Everybody wants you to lease. They don't want you to own. And that's the scariest part. I like it. It's $30 at home. 
I know it's not it's not great for everyone. I understand that. The people who live at home by themselves want to remind you that they don't have the exact same TV and that it's not equal to a family of four. But for the family of fours that this would have been targeting, yeah. I think it's fantastic. For the big families, they don't have to go out into the theater. They get to see it from home. And, and, and you get to share it with everybody on your profile. Right. I like, think. I also, we were talking about this back when uh, the first movies were starting to go to VOD that like, you know, yeah, they were at $20, but Scoob then had that 20 uh $25 option and now Mulan is $30 like I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to release the new Bond movie that they tried doing that for like 40 or $50 like it's a premium movie it's a movie that cost more to make I, I understand their the, the idea to potentially charge more for it here it's $30 seems like a reasonable option given that it's a primarily family oriented film and that's a movie that uh, would cost a lot more than $30 for a family to see in theaters uh, but yeah, just that idea of including it in the Disney Plus subscription is potentially worrisome. I do think that, you know, some people talked about how I think Robert Daniels, who we like, uh, tweeted that if 50 percent of Disney Plus subscribers uh, paid for Mulan, it would make something like nine hundred million dollars, which sounds like a lot. But that's probably less than it would have made if movie theaters around the world were open. So it does make me a little bit skeptical about future Disney properties going this way, at least the big ones. I don't yeah. I don't know if we'll see Black Widow unless Disney continues to uh, be searching for revenue uh, revenue sources. I, no, I agree. And it's pay-per-view. They've, they've been talking about it being 40-50. Remember Spielberg's comments? I was working on a, a video for A24, and I was going back, and I stumbled upon him where he said, I was this close to dropping Lincoln on HBO this close it would have been an hbo show uh it, that, that they wanted it to be a show they didn't want it to be a movie because you're able to milk out the content baby that we've talked about that though you don't want movies you want shows you want series you want the people mm -hmm. to stay on there watch for, time for watch time exactly and, and that's going to change the landscape but that's a whole other conversation to have about how our viewing habits have changed how we take in content but he had said there's going to be a point where the blockbusters are going to cost 40 50 dollars and something like lincoln is going to cost seven and I found that dumb at the time. Looking a lot more likely. You know, that Spielberg that Spielberg guy knows some things. And mm -hmm. uh, he may have mm -hmm. been right there. So, yeah, it definitely feels like it's good. I mean, we're seeing it now. The independent movies boot them to boot them to streaming. They don't have a place out there in the world of theaters. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Things are going to change. And when you throw in a pandemic with it, things change a lot faster. Absolutely. Uh, we're not done talking about Disney because in addition to moving Mulan to Disney Plus, the company reportedly halted production on future physical media releases. This not only applies to Disney's vast library of movies, but the many Fox properties that Disney acquired when they purchased 20th Century Fox. So art, yay or nay? No. Disney halting production on physical media is another sign of things to come. Yeah, it is a sign of things yeah. to come. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's not good. Dude. Adobe. I remember when you would be able to purchase Adobe Premiere or Adobe right. Photoshop, and now you can't really do that. And when you do the math, I, I am a big fan of the updates and everything that it comes with it. You could pay your, you know, uh, I know the school one, I think, is that you go from $9.99 to $19.99 for everything. I pay $30 for everything. And if you do the math in two years' time, that would be the equivalent of having purchased a thing. Sure. But I don't get it on that, what is it, 25th month. Whereas the other one I would have owned. 
the flip side would be I don't get updates, whereas this I right. do. But again, it's everything is leased. Every streaming service, you don't own the content. You're leasing it. Yeah, they want to do that with housing. They want to do it with the housing, Zach. They want to do it with our cars. They want to do it with everything. <laughs> our phones are leased. Everything is leased, Zach. Yeah. Uber movies. Um, it, it, it sucks. Yeah. As somebody who spent way too much time and energy working on my DVD collection, it, it definitely saddens me that there are certain films that might be impossible to get uh, once again or get in good enough quality. Like, you know, I again, talk about my DVD collection, like one of the things that's depressing about it is that that quality, you can really see the difference now on our modern TVs and not being able to get a 4K of some of our favorite movies and not being able to get 4K of uh, Fight Club, I know is one of the movies that Disney now owns or Aliens and stuff like that. Like it, it's depressing. And uh, as somebody who wants to be able to have access to them and access to them in a way that doesn't require a monthly fee or that movie even being available as we see you know some of these movies not even being available uh by the companies who own them yeah it's just it, it's frustrating uh to to limit access to some of these things that are historical in their own way mm-hmm. and uh to an extent i get the whole game of limiting access to something that uh to, to make it a little bit more exclusive but it's tough when it's something that's a little more more than a year or two old right like i, I get why you want to keep a movie in theaters the so exclusivity it'll get more money, thing exactly like, yeah but how much money is, is is are some of these classic movies even earning them anything right? like, we can we, zach we will squeeze every single penny yeah yeah one thing about your dvds Depressing. though one thing about your dvds you have a thing called special features just paid an arm and a leg for Midsommar 4K. Thank the Lord it came out in 4K. I didn't think it was going right. to. Open that bad boy. No special features. I don't even Weird. know if it's got a commentary track. Under the Silver Lake don't have one either. That's the other thing that they're taking away is the special features off, off of them yeah. because they could also market those or do something else with it. So, And that's sad too because I, I know you feel the same way, but that's some of the stuff that like it's the reason got I me the buy most it. interested yeah. in film. Yeah. That's what, yeah, that's what to, to literally gets me. That's what got me in the film. I don't know. We're going to need a VPN with a, <laughs> with a hacker over here to get to just to be able to get into these services, man. It's crazy. It's insane. Netflix unveiled their top 10 movies of all time. Asterix only based on two minutes of watch time. So if you started a movie and didn't even get through opening credits, that doesn't matter. Netflix counts as you having watched that film and you contributed to some of these movies being in their top 10, including at number 10, The Perfect Date. The only one of these movies that I legitimately had not heard of. Really? Uh, Noah Centineo. million views. So Noah Centineo. Uh, number nine, The Platform, which we have talked about. Good to see that movie up there. Good to see it. Number eight, The Wrong Missy somehow got 59 million views. Uh, number seven was Triple Frontier. Number six, The Irishman. Number uh, five, okay. Murder Mystery, the Adam Sandler, Jen Aniston one. Makes sense. Number four, Six Underground. Number three, Spencer <laughs> Confidential. Oh. Number two, Bird Box at 89 million. And number one, Extraction at 99 million. Yes, Chris Hemsworth is in the most watched Netflix movie of all time. Asterix, if you count two minutes as a watch. Art, based on this list, yay or nay, you feel this, this is a meaningful reflection of Netflix's most impactful movies? No, where's the... 
Where's that Claws movie? <laughs> the one that that uh, one sadly got less than forty eight million views. Apparently, no, it didn't. That broke box office record, Zach. When it came out, it broke broke box. Who was it? Russell, whatever. Who's in it? Kevin Costner. <laughs> is it Kevin Costner? Yeah. It's Kevin Costner. Or is it Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell. It's Kurt Russell. Oh my bad. See, Kevin Costner wouldn't bring in the three hundred million I that it came in. <laughs> that it won. Uh, I'm surprised that yeah, but you see what I mean. I'm surprised that didn't make it in there. But Bird Box makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, they got the sequel coming out. Does it mean anything? No, no, because these are the movies that they put up in the platform for you to yeah, irony the for you to actually like have it autoplay. You turn on your TV yeah. and it's gonna autoplay, and you're gonna count the two minutes. That's not fair. Especially the yeah. ending autoplays. Oh, the movie just said right. you're going to go get something, and it's auto-playing the next movie. It's like, nah, 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 nah. But yeah. it's marketing. And it's not a surprise that a lot of these movies are some of their recent high-profile blockbusters, the ones that they've really been pushing on the service. Uh, like you said, it's that two-minute thing. Like, I, I really don't think that this is an accurate met- metric of, like, what movies were actually watched. Like, I, I watched... Uh, the first like half an hour of the old guard and kind of realized I wasn't paying attention and bailed. I don't know if that really counts. Like I'm not trying to have discussions with people about the old guard. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard people bring up Spencer confidential. I haven't heard people bring up six underground like casually. It just doesn't seem to be the movies that resonate with people on Netflix. The, you know, I know marriage story is more niche, but like, there's so many people that are talking about that movie. It, maybe it's not the most watched, but it, maybe it's the most like closely watched or at least mm-hmm. one of them on Netflix. And I feel like there's got to be some titles like that that are, are missing in a way uh, because they've got this weird metric of if you only watch two minutes, that counts for them. It doesn't make sense to me. Twitter should have something. The most tweeted movies. And then that, that would let you know who's talking. About. It has to be. Yeah. It has to be a, what you're asking for. What you're asking for is a source that cannot be Netflix. It has to be an independent source that tracks that yeah. stuff. Because over here, all they care about is the max thing. Remember, and I don't know how you felt about this. They used to do the thumbs up. They used to do a proper rating and they stripped it of it. Right, right. Personally, I would hate. Can you imagine? If it was like YouTube and you would go on and you'd see like Marriage Story has like a 30% because of all the people who right. just hated it. It's like I don't I don't want that to come back. But they clearly pivot towards um, ratings and statistics really that improve their stuff. That yeah. that can that can boast to people and to their financiers or whoever else. So eh, it doesn't mean anything, yeah. but I get exactly. I get what you I mean. Think they've they've cherry picked the right statistic that will make it look like a good idea to greenlight sequels to Six Underground, Spencer Confidential, and Extraction. Is that Sunday Night Baseball uh, at bat while the wind is three degrees in this park while they're eating hot dogs in the stands? Yeah. It, it, 20 points on a Thursday after 7 p.m. Oh, boy. Got to take that one into account. Let's change the pitch. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't see it working. But, I mean, every single streaming service, no one's watching them. There is no Nielsen rating. There's no. They're the ones who will be telling you. Universal will be telling you what they're making, as they have. Uh, Hulu will be telling you what they're making. So I don't know. Yeah, and that's why you know social media ends up becoming such a good metric. That's for what these I'm saying. Things because it's hard to trust other sources. Mm-hmm. 
anyway. So that's it for yay or nay. Let us know what you thought of these stories and what you'd like to see us cover on a future episode in the comments again, or by shooting us that email, intercutpod at gmail.com. Also reach out to us at intercutpod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. That's our handle on all three at intercutpod. We're going to get into the topic of the week because the Emmy nominations were unveiled recently in mm. uh, a pretty awkward Zoom call that Liz, uh, Leslie Jones was funny on, but uh, definitely seems like they had some connection problems throughout. That's funny. Uh, Watchmen, one of our favorites of the last Did it year. Get Maybe our favorite of the last year. Did it get enough? Led all projects with 26 nominations. It was in the best limited series category, along with Little Fires Everywhere, Mrs. America, Unbelievable, and Orthodox. So some picks that we like there. Uh, but notably, not in best limited series was devs devs was virtually absent from the emmys only earning four nominations in tech categories like cinematography and sound editing obviously deserved those but come on give my boy nick offerman some love he was so good on that that's show. how nick offerman wanted it to be in the show you, you didn't want anyone to know about devs snooping around devs none of that stuff i agree with you um one of the ones that stood out to me was uh the watchman <laughs> Is it they got nominated for the older version of Reeves and the younger version of Reeves? Am I mistaken? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Come on. It, I think in was it in supporting actor or guest actor maybe um, that Louis Gossett Jr. and the other actor who played uh, William Reeves both. I think it was a reoccurring one. Uh, it must have been because I also have something to say about the the special guest ones are ridiculous. I'm seeing people who were main characters appear as guest performances and that's that martian putting it as a comedy because you know you're gonna win it type thing mm -hmm. but uh no yeah i yeah. thought that was pretty dope no there was some it was weaver not getting nominated for unbelievable when yeah come on now i mean both i love Caitlin tony deaver and Merritt weaver didn't get those uh actress nominations for unbelievable which what did she need to do to me it's like yeah, like what other performance are you watching that's better than Merritt Weaver's performance on Unbelievable? It, it, Give them both. I, it's just astounding to me. They're both so good on that. Uh, I was worried for a second that none of them got nominated, but I saw Tony Collette got nominated. So yeah. at least that. But, you know, Tony Collette is the most established name of that bunch, and they're all so good on the show. Guess. Not to mention, like, Danielle McDonald also in more of a guest role. Like, I just, I. I was awestruck by Unbelievable last year, um, so I'm a, a bit of disappointed to not see it uh, get a little bit more love here uh, in the Emmy nominations. Uh, but also, you know, there were a, a few acting uh, snubs that were kind of weird. What the else? cast of Better Call Saul, almost all entirely getting uh, not getting the love. Bob Odenkirk, who's been nominated in the past, didn't get the nomination. Rhea Seahorn, who's giving one of the best performances on TV, also not getting a nomination once again. Uh, and, and that's a show that's been uh, awarded quite a bit by the Emmys, not quite as much as Breaking Bad but was, but it feels like they're maybe ignoring it a little bit, which mm -hmm. is a shame since that show has continued to be really excellent. I'm starting to work my way through that fifth season now, and it's just, it's, I don't know. They've still got it. That The Albuquerque gang is still <laughs> the best people out there at making uh, episodic television, I think. Um, I, was I know some people were, were you going to say something? Just a quick one. Like, they, if you look back at it, gave Modern Family too many awards. 
and on their final season for said bye bye. Is it because Modern Family decided to stop giving out gift baskets since they weren't going to have a, a, an up following like an upcoming season? I, I don't know what happened there. I'm surprised they didn't even get a nomination after the mark they did like on the Emmys for the longest time. So many shows were dismissed or not given the proper due because of that. So. Uh. Yeah, a show like Homeland, which has done so well at the Emmys for so many years, did not get like any nominations, I believe, uh, for its most recent final season. So uh, it, it's, it's interesting in the way that Emmys will sort of embrace some shows like full heartedly, yeah. and then they kind of just fall off a cliff at some point with them. And I hope that's not the case for a show like Better Call Saul, which is doing some great work mm-hmm. uh, as it rounds near its ending. Uh, I do think, though, it's worth discussing the new top dog at the Emmys because Succession was everywhere. 18 nominations. Almost all of the main cast got nominated. Three supporting actor nominations. He's telling y'all to watch it. Go watch Succession. Zach wants you to watch Succession. Please watch And then he's going to get mad when everyone's watching Succession. He's going to be like, I was there from the start. I am the succession hipster. It's true. Uh, uh, but shout out to my boys, the Roy family, the number one boys. Doing well. uh, best drama. The nominees were Better Call Saul, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Killing Eve, The Mandalorian, Ozark, Stranger Things, and Succession. See, you want to pause uh, on, on Mandalorian. Stranger Things, the new Coke season? Yeah, yeah. I mean... That's something that I do want to kind of talk about here because Netflix has the most nominations out of any network in this category with The Crown, That's crazy. with Ozark, and with Stranger <laughs> Things. However, uh, we see Stranger Things kind of dipping in quality with each successive season, and it kind of and it didn't get a lot of other nominations that it had in the past. So I do wonder if its run in Best Drama maybe will end this year unless we see like a, a pickup or bigger baskets. Ozark, that means. which. Uh, Ozark, which is, has two half seasons coming up, we we found out. How but, does that work, uh, Emmy wise? I, I, you bet Netflix is going to put them in different Emmy cycles to earn as many awards as they can. How is that They're fair? Uh, Breaking Bad did it. Mad Men did it. I don't know. Did they I really? I believe so. It was like so maybe f- somebody can correct. Five A nominated, five B nominated. Like that's goofy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. They play. And The Crown is also coming to the end of its run. So even though Netflix does have a big presence here in the best drama category, it does make me wonder, you know, a year or two from now, uh, what is going to be that Netflix show that they really push for Emmys? Uh, it, will they have that show or are they going in more of like a, a populist Umbrella Academy, 13 Reasons Why, uh, sensational, fun show yeah. direction? I mean, they have stuff like, for example... Well, I mean, I, I'm focusing more on HBO, but I think Euphoria should have fit in there for the drama series. Yeah. Uh, I am really glad that the morning show isn't on there, but we're, if we're talking... Bro, we just literally said, please don't tell me they're splitting seasons to A and B. This is the same season. Is it not? For morning show? They got nominated last time, did they not? I don't... I think that, that might have just been the Globes. I don't okay, know. Okay, because I'm like, bro, how were they getting nominated once again? It's like these people, right. they released it right from the cycle, and they mixed out like one season to be to be both. Uh, I still think Euphoria could have made it up there. Um, yeah, and that might just be because it's so early in its run, and not a lot of shows get in there in that first season, which is, again, one of the reasons why it was so exciting when Zendaya cracked the uh, best actress, or Zendaya, excuse me, yeah. cracked the best actress field. Um, you know, I, we both think she's giving one of the best performances on TV and, 
it's glad to see, it's I'm glad to see the Emmy voters uh, recognize that too. Uh, hopefully, as season two comes back, we go further and further into that show. The show will the show will also be recognized in other ways, whether that's best drama, whether that's some of the uh, less Mu- famous actors, music, in it, like tech, Hunter Schaefer, everything. One hundred percent, dude. Bad education. Yeah. Best TV movie. I don't like the yeah, title we- on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit depressing, but uh, glad to see that uh, our boy Corey Finley's in there and it's getting some love. Uh, Bro, it is in categories. the middle of a Dolly Parton one. No offense on American Son. It's good. Better as a Broadway play. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Which is, like, what's going on here? The interactive special, which... It's going I, up against I, I an interactive fun, special. But it's... <laughs> it's going up against a point and click, Zach. What are, we, yeah. what are we doing here? That's the weird. That's the weirdness with these different categories. Like Emmys have tried to subdivide all these things into smaller and smaller categories, and it makes some of them like we. It, it makes the, the the actual nominees a weird collection. Yeah, but we also I don't know what else you're going to do about it. We have enough interactive stuff coming out. It could it could get its own category. At this point, it can get its own. Bandersnatch won last year or so, so they can practically yeah. get their own category. Yeah. Is it just going to be whatever Netflix releases, though? Wins no, it there's going to be a bunch more. I 100% believe there's going to be a lot more. And, I mean, that's just because they don't want to open it up to a lot of video games because PlayStation has a bunch that are also technically yeah. interactive movies. But, again, it's how they want to play it. And as of now, <laughs> the, the, the guilds or whoever pitches uh for them they know what they're doing yeah yeah um i was happy to see what we do in the shadows a tv show that i like quite a bit oh, good. uh crack the outstanding comedy series category and it got several uh writing nominations including mm-hmm. stephanie robinson got a writing nomination for uh one of her episodes uh a show that we both like a lot black lady sketch show yeah got nominated the variety sketch series got a couple other nominations on top of that so a lot of stuff that uh made me very happy to see. I don't know if there were certain nominations you were really excited about. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see the variety talk shows because uh, all of these, I think, have done a terrible job adapting to the 2020 atmosphere. I'd say probably Trevor Noah was the only one who embraced the YouTube era and was like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm going to just straight up make YouTube videos. Um, that's going to be interesting to see how they do it. Just how they host the entire. Will this be the first award ceremony? Uh, I think of the major ones, at least, you it's, know? Gonna, it's going to be the first one that tackles what a v- award show looks like in lockdown. That's funny. They're volunteering as tribute. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. But, hey, I am glad that they are honoring the movies or uh, TV movies and shows that have come out because 2020 is still a year, Zach, and you should not be postponing award shows when there's still movies that are out, which is meant mm-hmm. to define the year of film mm-hmm. it's not like these movies and tv shows don't count it's nice that an awards body is continuing its normal cycle of uh giving them out they're not, not giving out they're not giving out the COVID pageant. baskets <laughs> yeah uh also i was happy to see that greg whiteley greg wheatley whatever you however you pronounce his name uh got a best directing nomination for his work on cheer because that's a show that's so uh As so dope. beautifully shot um I, I feel like he's so responsible for giving it that distinctive uh, feel and intimate look so shouts to him shouts to cheer shouts to all the nominees that we like um but yeah i let us know if there's any other snubs or surprises that you were excited to see 
we we talked. I talked about uh, the awards a little bit on Twitter, but I don't know. We'll talk about them ale- again when we see what actually wins, yeah. and maybe uh, get into more details with them. Mm-hmm. I have a lot to binge watch. A lot of good shows to binge watch that ended up uh, with Emmys that I have not finished yet. But uh, it, Yvonne from Insecure. I-, I hope she wins Best Supporting uh, Actress in Comedy. That because she killed it in season four so that'd be dope to see as well yeah yeah all right so uh those are our thoughts on the emmys let us know what you think but we're gonna get to the new to see where we give you our picks for the week recommendations for what to watch this upcoming week art why don't we start with you what have you got for the people uh i'll give you some of the ones that i'm looking forward to i know she dies tomorrow is out right they were supposed to be doing yeah they were supposed to be doing something with uh the um Music Box Theater, maybe even the drive-in. I haven't really heard too much about that, but uh, I'm also excited to stream La Llorona, which is, I believe, coming to Shudder, if it isn't already in Shudder. Um, that was one where it shouldn't be confused with the Conjuring WB version of La Llorona that they did. This is like uh, like an actual drama. Uh, and I know that it, it was at Sundance for a little bit, and it was at a couple of other festivals, so I'm really excited to see that. Uh, let me see if I have anything that I would recommend off the top of... Me, I did see a trilogy. I guess I'll say this. There was The Legacy of the Bones uh, was a movie that had come out on Netflix and it ended up being a part of a trilogy, a Boston trilogy uh, that would be The Invisible Guardian, The Legacy of the Bones, and then the last one, which is, I don't know what it is. It's um, a Spanish mystery series based off of a trilogy of, uh, of books. Um, and all three are on Netflix. So if you wanted to catch up on them, they are very long. Each one is passing two hours, but I think the middle one was the best, and it's like a pretty crazy story because you're not just following different mysteries that are happening uh, in this town. You're mainly following the detective who the mysteries revolve around her. Obviously, we're very American. We're like, how the heck is she still on the case if it's her family that's involved that she needs to investigate? But they also kind of get into that unbelievable aspect where she's like, no wonder you guys aren't finding serial killers. You guys don't even have a network to, to showcase, so all the serial killer has to do is kill here and then move on to the next town. They're never going to connect the dots. Um, so it does have the the very interesting procedural aspect to it. So if you wanted to catch mm-hmm. something like that, those are out there. They're in Spanish uh, and they're on Netflix. But I'll, I'll probably have some more that I'll be watching this week to recommend for next week for sure. What about you, Zach? Awesome. All right, so we will be on the lookout for those. Uh, you mentioning serial killers and stuff. Made me think of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which I just finished, finished up. It? Okay, how was uh, it? It finished its six-episode run on HBO, and uh, now that it's finished its run, I can definitely fully recommend this because it, it is a show that you're probably going to want to binge, the hunt for the Golden State Killer and Michelle McNamara's process in trying to get to the bottom of the case. It's so compelling and, and so shocking in some of its its details and just the... Uh, the the way in which the investigation unfolds, uh, I think, is so well done. But there's also this really beautiful aspect of the show in that it gives you the profile of Michelle McNamara and kind of uh, all the effort that was put into her pursuit of this investigation and the ways in which it kind of ate away at her, too. Uh, I think it's because of stuff like that and because of the way that it's able to profile some of its victims, it's more than just like your basic true crime show that revels in the grisly details of rapes and murders. It gets a little bit further than that and, and talks about the impact and the lasting impact it ha- these incidents have had on different people's lives, even ultimately on the lives of the family of the murderer. Uh, and I, I was, I thought it was 
really beautifully done by Liz Garbus, uh, who's directed some interesting true crime stuff. Uh, Mommy Dearest, Mommy Dead and Dearest, I think was one of the recent okay. uh, films she did. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely re- recommend I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO now that it's finished up its run. Uh, I also recommend a couple movies that I got to rewatch recently. Both of them are on Hulu. The first is Buffaloed, the Zoe Dutch. Let's go. Uh, you know what? I always want to talk co- a little bit about more about that movie for whatever reason. I, I want to do like a. Sp- yeah. I have to do a let us explain on on Buffalo. I don't know if we've talked about this one, but I know you liked it. I liked it quite a bit too. Like it's this uh, sort of like small town Wolf of Wall Street in a sense. In that Zoe Dutch finds herself in debt and goes into debt collecting and yeah. sort of starts this mini empire. Bro. Uh, but it, it's got those like fourth wall breaks the way that Wolf of Wall Street did. And it's in its indictment of uh, different <laughs> financial systems. I don't know. I I liked a lot about this one. It's got a really charming performance from our girl mm-hmm. and uh, good cast around her, too, with Judy Greer and Jermaine Fowler. I was very, very charmed by this movie. Was what's his name in there? Mr. Boomerang himself. Isn't Jai Courtney in the movie? Is he? I want to. Yeah, say, he is. He's I want to say he's in the movie. Head of the first debt agency or whatever. But he's good, Zach. Yeah, Jack Courtney is great in the movie. Uh, yeah, it's his, maybe his best role. I would definitely recommend that one on Hulu now that it's out there because if you're like, dude, everybody in quarantine right now is getting calls up the like just every single person trying to scheme, trying to scam uh, from the comfort of their own homes right now. And this movie is it's that nasty underbelly. You're right. It's like Wolf of Wall Street, but I think the beauty of it is that it's not it's not dealing with stocks. It's dealing with something that it's a nasty world. And like the more you search up into it, it's like. Yeah, they, they take some liberties here and there, but people really do collect other people's debt and then use that to be able to maximize as much profit as they can. And they do this on the elderly all the time. They don't know any better. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a pretty fun movie, too, while giving you some of these uh, bigger ideas and lessons. I liked it quite a bit. Watched uh, watched that not too long ago. And I also rewatched The Assistant. Uh, okay. which is on Hulu, not as fun of a movie, uh, but uh, a really interesting and and very well-observed film from first-time feature director Kitty Green uh, here at Julia Garner, plays the main character, the titular assistant, uh, and you kind of get like a day-to-day of her life in this company where she's uh, one of several assistants to this big, uh, fil- this big person in film. They don't say his role specifically he's like a head of some film commission uh but it it sort of uh glances at these ideas of me too and uh harassment of 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 less powerful individuals uh and does it from this very kind of like microaggressions perspective where you don't get any of these big scenes of uh people yelling or or abusive behavior you just get these little hints at it the way that uh it might actually happen in in a in a real scenario the way the it, it helps put you in that mindset of how uh frustrating and torturous it might be to be in that toxic work environment uh where there's there's awful things happening in the treatment of people that aren't necessarily out and out crimes right um, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's a very slight movie. Like it doesn't move a lot in terms of where its characters start and where they end up, but just at giving you this impressions uh, of an experience that many people can relate to. Like even in my limited experience as an assistant, I felt, I 
experienced some of those things too. Uh, it's just very well observed and a strong statement uh, from a director who, you know, I, I'm excited to see more from her too. Uh, was this your second time catching it? Yeah. I need to catch it again because uh, I remember the the scene where she goes in to talk to the guy who's like, but I don't understand. What are you implying? What are you implying? Right. So like, what, what, what was it there? And it's like, they get that down to a degree that very, very. Um, in rewatching the movie, that scene in particular felt to me like the never rarely, sometimes always scene oh, from never yeah, rarely, sometimes yeah. always. Because it, it's kind of the it's one effective. scene in both films where they just like dive into the emotions of it. And, and it, it puts it a little bit on display. Uh, but even even then, I mean, both these films, it's just the subtle approach to talking about the issues just feels so much more lived in and powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I liked The Assistant quite a bit. Uh, so really? definitely one that's worth catching up with on Hulu. Get a Hulu subscription, man. They are getting some crazy stuff. They hit me with an email the other day. It's like, let's make it a movie night. I was like, what do you got? And it was like, I had seen them all, but I was like, Parasite? <laughs> they had Free Solo? They have some great yeah. movies I'll on watch there. Portrait of Lady on Fire again? Why not? Sure. You know? So, yeah. And I mean, with Palm, they got Palm Springs. Palm Springs. With, with, yeah, times. exactly. So they're doing, they're doing big stuff over there. They got devs nominated for devs. technical awards at the Emmys. You know? They got some mm-hmm. really good stuff. So get yourself a Hulu yeah. account. And uh, my p- quick podcast corner, because I like making this a thing, is Home Cooking with Samin Nosrat and Hrishikesh Hirway. Uh, Samin is the author and star of the Netflix series Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which has been like a really great uh, delving into some of the worlds of cooking as I've like been in lockdown and cooking more for myself. I've really actually learned more from her show than I've had from cooking shows in the past. But what I really like about this podcast is that they've got a very uh, fun, uh, f- joyful banter. Like that, you can tell the co-hosts feel like friends. Hopefully mm-hmm. if you like watching this podcast, that's a vibe that you're going for in your podcasts. <laughs> Uh, but they give you cooking ruminations, ideas, and tips littered with dumb puns and their joyful interaction. Uh, Hrishikesh created Song Exploder, uh, which is one of my favorite music podcasts, and he's just a brilliant producer of podcasts in uh, the, the pacing of it and just the manufacturing of it. The sound is always so good on his podcasts. So it, it's a show that I've been listening to as I've been cooking recently, so maybe that's something that uh, you would want to put into your routine if you've been doing a little more cooking yourself. Oh Home cooking with Samin Nosrat and Trisha Case Hirway. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we've been watching in our picks for the week. Let us know what you are going to watch. Uh, but that's all for this week's show. You can catch more from me, Zach Shevich. Uh, if I follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd, at Zshevich, that's Z-S-H-E-V as in Veep, I-C-H. And check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash multiplex show. Arturo, where can people find more from you? You can find me at LME Explain or the A to Z Show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course YouTube. Or you can follow me every week here on the Intercut Podcast. You can listen to every episode of the Intercut Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher, I like Overcast. And then make sure you're not subscribed just to the audio feed, but to the video feed as well on YouTube.com slash IntercutPod, where you can catch our bright, smiling faces as we break through the latest in entertainment. Find new episodes of Intercut every Friday. And please leave us a comment, like the video, let us uh, consider heading over to iTunes to give us a five-star review. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. 
I'm, I'm looking for some more more aff- affirmation. So please do that if you care about Intercut. You know, it just it warms my heart. Shout out to listeners in Israel and Kenya for putting us on the TV and hey. film podcast charts there. Like our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. All of them are at Intercut Pod to get updates throughout the week from Art, from me, from all the guests that we feature here on Intercut. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, if it were awful, it would have been exciting, but terrifically competent. There's no excuse for that. What's that from? Shirley, man. <laughs> <laughs>